Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. It's where we're going to be at this morning. We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Acts this morning. And today we're going to look at the clarifying letter from the council. Our main text is Acts 15, verses 22 through 35. But just for some context, as we've been in chapter 15 now, this is our fourth week Over the past three weeks since we began studying chapter 15 of Acts, we've been seeing this situation unfold that started with some false brethren who went out from Jerusalem but were not sent out or authorized in any way by the church there. These false brethren coming to Syrian Antioch where they taught the Gentile believers that unless they were circumcised and kept the law of Moses, they could not be saved. This led to Paul and Barnabas taking this situation to the church leaders in Jerusalem who all came together in a council to consider this matter. And once they came together, there was much dispute. There was a lot of arguing that was happening. Peter gets up. He makes an appeal. He reminds the council of what God had done through his life years earlier and taking the gospel to the Gentiles and how God saved the Gentiles in their uncircumcised, non-law-keeping state, justifying them in that place as Gentiles. Then Paul and Barnabas get up and, and they give testimony of God, how God had worked miraculously through them among the Gentiles. This kind of looking back to what we are told in just a chapter or two earlier where it said that God was bearing witness to the word of his grace. That as, as the word of his grace, the gospel of grace was going out, the, the, the miraculous things that he was doing at that time were, were a testimony. They were assigned by God to show them that, that he was in it. He was doing it. He was responsible And then finally, James, the the half-brother of Jesus, who was a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church, he he got up and he responded also. We found that James didn't leave those things in the realm of experience only, but he showed by his quotation of the prophet Amos that these things were biblical, that were happening, that the Old Testament prophets agreed with what they were seeing in the Gentiles being saved by God's grace. And then James gave his conclusion. He gave his judgment that they shouldn't trouble the Gentiles who were turning to God. The troubling coming from the false brethren who said that the Gentiles need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. They shouldn't tr- trouble them, but that they should write to the Gentiles and give them instructions of things to abstain from, things that would help keep the unity and fellowship between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ and and also the Gentiles own fellowship with the Lord. And all of this is just really important context as we move into our verses today. And with that, read verse 22, even though we left off with it last week, where we find that the church and its leaders unanimous response. Verse 22 of Acts 15, it says, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely 
Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. The council began with great dispute taking place. We saw this in verse 7. But now it's ending with the apostles and elders, with the whole church being pleased by what James proposed in his judgment about not troubling the Gentiles, but instead writing them an important letter to know their decision. And and this is significant. See, back in verse 7, I don't think any of us were surprised by seeing that there was a great dispute. Because any time you get more than one person together, more than one personality, more than one background you're going to have a difference of opinion. When you have different sinners saved by grace, but still sinners being sanctified by the Spirit of God, coming together in one place to kind of face a challenging situation, you're going to have some some problems. It, It happens. And it doesn't take many people to have that. It doesn't take a thousand people to have a dispute. It doesn't take a hundred people to have a dispute. It doesn't take 20 people to have a dispute. You can have a dispute in your own mind, and it's just you. You can struggle. You're thinking of something, you're like, no, that's not it. Why are you thinking that way? And this is the problem isn't if you talk to yourself, the problem is if you answer yourself back, right? Isn't that the saying? Anyways. There was this dispute, and and again, we wouldn't be surprised by that, but what would surprise us, what would be noteworthy and significant is what we find here. Not just that the apostles and elders came to this unanimous agreement that pleased them, where formerly they were disputing. Now, Now there's a unanimous decision being made. Beyond that, beyond the church leadership, it says the whole church. The whole church. There are thousands of people in the Jerusalem church at this time. And it pleased them all what James came to a conclusion about. It pleased every single one of them. And I want us to understand even within that how significant that was that remember back in verse 5, there were some of the sect of the Pharisees who were bringing strong opposition, saying they must be circumcised. We must command them to keep the law of Moses. Even those people were among this group who were now pleased by what the decision that James had brought. There is a change of mind that led to a change of action, a change of response. And this is a beautiful thing when the Spirit of God does something like this in an individual's life, but also among a whole multitude of people. That instead of there being this polarizing sort of thing going on that every single person could go That's right. This is the right thing to do. For there to be a peace about that. 
I think if anything, as we've seen over the last year, what we've seen is verse 7. In a lot of ways, the church globally has been stuck in verse 7, just much dispute. Coming together in much dispute, not everybody agreeing about things. But what God desires to do is verse 22. That these things would be peaceable, that we'd be united around the things that really matter, the things that are central to the heart of God, the things that are at the focus of the kingdom of God and for all eternity. Those essential things that all of us would be able to rally around that and hold the non-essentials with loose hands and be able to be peacemakers. I pray that would be true. I pray it'd be less verse 7 and more verse 22. God had changed minds. He had softened hearts. This was something the Lord did in the hearts of these Jewish believers in Jerusalem regarding the Gentiles. And the unanimous, unanimous response of the church leaders to James's judgment his conclusion again was that these things pleased all of them and caused them to want to send out paul and barnabas and two other trusted leaders with them to clarify their decision to the church in syrian antioch and specifically the gentile believers in that church when i read this i don't see this letter being sort of a begrudging sort of thing like a reluctant sort of thing like I guess we need to write to them. I guess we need to include them. I guess we need to like let them know that being saved by Jesus alone, by grace alone, was enough. No, there's an excitement here, I believe. I, I believe this pleasing of the multitude was a, was a joyful sort of response and decision to say, hey, you know what? Let's send our best. Let's let these Gentiles know we love them. We receive them. We are one with them them and i i just i I love what we're seeing here in this church council because again we're, we're seeing a lot of things that are not matching up with what we see here in our day that i i believe god wants to to change he wants to do a fresh work in but moving on in verses 23 through 39 we're going to see the contents of the letter that's going to be sent to the gentiles in antioch and so Let's start by reading verse 23 as we start to make our way through this letter. It says, They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. A couple things that stand out in the opening portion of this letter is them letting the Gentiles know that they took these things seriously. They heard that the Gentile believers were troubled by some who came to them with false authority and a false message. And because of that, all the church leaders assembled with one accord to send Paul and Barnabas back to them with this letter. They took it seriously. But something else that stands out is that the Jerusalem church responded the way they did out of care for their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only did they hear that false brethren went to the Gentiles, but they had a care and concern for the state of the Gentile believers' souls. They cared 
that that false message troubled and unsettled their souls. This letter is a family letter. It's coming from a place of love and care for the Gentiles, that that the souls of the Gentiles would be at rest instead of troubled, that the souls of the Gentiles would be settled at peace, would be firm, would be confident in the Lord instead of unsettled, upset, and confused. You know, there's so many things that can cause our souls, and that word soul, speaking of the seat of the mind. So many things that can cause our our souls, our minds to become troubled and unsettled. So many things that try to pull us away from that place of resting and trusting in the Lord and experiencing his peace. And there are people all around us whose souls are troubled and unsettled today, believers and unbelievers alike. And some of you may be in that place today. This letter to these Gentiles should serve as a reminder and encouragement to all of us as believers in Jesus. That you and I can be used in the lives of unbelievers whose souls, whose minds are troubled, unsettled, and unsettled, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are troubled and unsettled and sitting in darkness and separated from Jesus so that they hear about the hope and salvation and forgiveness and peace and life that can be theirs if they'll turn to Christ. But we can also be used in the lives of other believers whose souls or minds are troubled and unsettled, bringing the word of God to them to comfort and encourage and restore hope and bring peace and to build up as we come alongside those who are hurting and confused and dealing with the brokenness of the world that we live in and the destructive effects of sin. The church leaders in Jerusalem didn't send or authorize the false brethren who brought that message about them having to be circumcised and keep the law, but they did send this other group. They're making it clear that this letter was from them, that that Paul and Barnabas were being sent back with recognition that they were dearly loved by the church leaders in Jerusalem and that they had risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did I read verses 24 through 27? I didn't. Let's read that real quick. I'm like, did I totally skip over reading those verses? Opening greeting. Rewind just a little bit. He says, or it says in the letter in verse 24, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our Beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. Again, they're making it clear Paul and Barnabas are being sent back with recognition that they are 
dearly loved by the church leaders in Jerusalem, that they had risked their lives for the name of Jesus. That the men who went to Antioch in the beginning of Acts chapter 15 were false, but Paul and Barnabas were loved. They were legit. They were being sent with the unanimous approval of the church council in Jerusalem to bring this clarifying letter to the Gentiles. And along with the two men who they already knew well, Paul and Barnabas, these men who had helped pastor and lead the church in Antioch and who had taught the taught and ministered to these Gentiles before this, the council also sent along Judas and Silas, leaders in the Jerusalem church who were sent to report the same things by word of mouth, added witnesses that this letter was truly from the Jerusalem council and ultimately from the Lord to them. But let's see the conclusion of this letter in verses 28 and 29. It says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That phrase, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, is such an awesome line to read in this letter. This shows that the Jerusalem council recognized that the judgment from James was from the Holy Spirit. It was a word of wisdom from the Spirit of God to give the right solution to an issue that held eternal consequences if they had gotten it wrong. It also shows that the church leaders were seeking to be led by and obedient to the Holy Spirit in this whole situation. You know, this was new territory for all of them. This is a situation they had never had to deal with before. But they were humble. They were teachable. They were ready to get on board with whatever the Spirit of God was speaking and doing. If it seemed good, if it seemed right to the Holy Spirit, the church leader's response was to get their perspective, their priorities, and their decisions in line with what the Spirit of God was wanting to do and the decisions he wanted them to make and then follow his lead. I love that these church leaders were responsive to what the Spirit of God was saying, this is good. Isn't that what all of us are needing in our lives, a responsiveness? Because it's not that the Spirit of God is not speaking to you and me today. He speaks to us. The problem is, are we listening? The problem is, are we obedient? The problem is, are we humble enough that when the Spirit of God is saying something into our lives, maybe it's a word of correction, a word of conviction, maybe it's a word of 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 wanting to step out into something new that you and I can quench the Spirit of God in our lives by saying simply, no. Saying, I don't want to. Saying, you know what? I, I don't really have time for that. You ever felt strongly that the 
the Lord was speaking something into your life and you just kind of like brushed it under the rug? I know I have. Or you make excuses for yourself like, I just, I'm really busy today. Got a lot on my plate. All my blocks and my calendar all filled up. Maybe another day, Lord. Maybe you should choose somebody else. The more that we say yes, when the Spirit of God is speaking into our lives, the more that you and I can come to the same sorts of conclusions to be able to say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and I said yes. It's not that they were validating the Spirit of God, like, well, it became the Spirit of God because we said it. No, the Spirit of God was already doing this. The Spirit of God was already leading in this sort of way. The Spirit of God was behind these Gentiles being saved by grace. It was the apostles and elders in the church in Jerusalem and all the, Gen- the Jewish believers that just needed to, to, to get on board with what the Spirit of God was already doing. You know, in our day, the Spirit of God is moving, He's working. He's saving, he's transforming, he's anointing, he's raising up, he's sending out. He's bringing conviction. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's been happening for 2,000 years. The thing that we need to do as believers is to have our eyes open to what the Spirit of God is doing, what seems good to the Spirit of God, and then say, Lord, we want to be a part of that too. God, whatever you're doing, I want to be right in the flow of that. Whatever your Spirit is doing, I want to be obedient to. I want to be responsive to. I want to be humble enough to to see and to hear what you're speaking what you're doing. These believers did that. The decision was to not lay upon the Gentiles the burden the false brethren had tried to lay upon them, that that in order to be saved, it was going to take more than just faith in Jesus, but Jesus plus circumcision and Jesus plus the keeping of the law, but instead to let them know that these necessary things that they abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality, and telling them that if they kept themselves from these things, they would do well. Now, as I said last week, it, it might seem to us like the church leaders just replaced circumcision and the keeping of the law with four other things that they now had to do, that they now had to keep in order to be saved. But what we find here and what the council wrote to the Gentiles and told them to abstain from is is not a list of things being added to their faith in Jesus. These are not prerequisites in order for them to be saved, but instead are some concessions for them to make. Because three of these things involving food would be damaging to their fellowship with other believing Jews and their witness to non-believing Jews if they didn't abstain from them. And one of these things, sexual immorality, would be damaging to their own fellowship with Jesus if they didn't abstain from it. 
Understand, idolatry and sexual immorality were prevalent and predominant in Gentile culture and throughout the Roman Empire in that day. And oftentimes the two would go hand in hand. The sexual immorality would be happening with the idolatry, temple prostitution. Now, just to dig into this a little bit more, to help us understand what was going on here, when considering idolatry, you know, while Gentile believers at this time who began to worship Jesus as their Lord, their Savior, their God, would would separate themselves from the idolatry of their former lives before Christ, they might not immediately see any issues with some of the food choices they made. Food that had been offered to idols, meat of a, a strangled animal or an animal that didn't have all its blood drained. Food choices that would severely offend and stumble their Jewish brethren in Christ, especially if they were to bring these things to one of the church's love feasts or had invited a a Jewish believer into their home for a meal, as Jews saw those things as unclean or forbidden by the law of Moses. These things would severely affect their ability to witness to any non-believing Jews who would think that these Gentile Christians were still practicing idolatry because of the food choices that they had been making. But considering sexual immorality, while these Gentile believers had been saved out of various lives of sin, the prevailing attitude of the culture, and especially the Roman Empire of that day, that accepted and even celebrated whatever sinful sexual decisions you made, whether single or married as a heterosexual or giving yourself over to the sin of homosexuality or even sexual sin with those in close family ties or incestuous relationships, which was something that happened a lot within the Roman Empire and in that Greek culture, brought with it a needed word from the Holy Spirit through the church in this letter that though those things were accepted and even celebrated by the culture they were surrounded with, all sexual immorality was sin in the eyes of God and needed to be abstained from these, from, by these Gentile believers and all believers, including us still today, because this abstinence from sexual immorality is not just something found here in this letter, but it's found throughout the New Testament. You know, it's, it's tragic how people are viewing freedom these days. Our sex-saturated and sex-centric culture says that freedom is getting to do whatever you want sexually without anyone telling you it's wrong or making you feel weird about it. But understand this, freedom to sin is not real freedom because sin makes you a slave. Sin always brings a person into bondage. Paul lays this out masterfully in Romans chapter 6. Jesus came to set captives free, to bring real freedom that's greater and infinitely more important than any national rights or national freedoms because it has to do 
with the soul and eternity of an individual who is a slave to sin and on the road leading to eternal separation from God and destruction in hell. Listen to a conversation Jesus had in John chapter 8. It says this in John 8, verses 31 through 36. We'll put this on the screen for you, but it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I love it that when Paul, and I can't remember right now offhand what book it is, in one of his epistles, He's talking about all the different kinds of sin that these believers had been in. And and some of them in the depths of sexual immorality. And and he says, and such were some of you. Past tense. Such were some, that was you. That was you, but, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified. And some of us look at our own lives and we can say the same thing. Such was me. That was me, but I'm not that person anymore. Jesus didn't save me so that I could stay in bondage to sin. He saved me so that I could be truly free. You could be truly free. Don't buy into the postmodernistic view of truth being relative, being whatever you make of it. I mean, it's, a, it's such a buzzword to say my truth these days, your truth. And, and there's a validity in someone's experience. I'm not discounting what somebody has been through. But either something is true or it's false. It's either true or it's not true. Jesus said he is the truth. Knowing Jesus personally, where you surrendered all of yourself entirely to him, he becomes your savior and Lord and king and God, is where real freedom is found. And if the Son, if Jesus makes you free, if he makes me free, we shall be free indeed. You know, oftentimes we put things into our Western context. We just think of our own freedoms. We might respond like the Jews did in Jesus' day that he talked to in in, uh, John chapter 8. We hear that we're slaves of sin, and we go, I'm not a slave to anybody. I've never been a slave. That's not me, Jesus. I'm not, that's not me. Talk to somebody else. That's somebody else. No, Jesus is saying it. What he's saying is true. If you've sinned, you're a slave to sin. Well, each of us are born in sin. That means each of us are born in bondage to sin. You ever tried to stop sinning completely by yourself on your own? You can't do it. 
You can stop some things. And you can stop some things for some time. But you can't stop all your sin for all time. Because sinners are going to sin. That's what we do. And we're good at it. See it all over the world. doesn't matter what culture you're from, what language you speak, what color your skin is, sinners going to sin. But when we, when we see this, when we read this, understand that it goes beyond culture. It crosses all ethnicities. It doesn't matter what kind of governmental structure and freedoms and rights you have. This applies just as much to us in this country as it does to people in India or, or Africa who may be born into a class system with existing slavery. If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. Doesn't matter if you're here in this country or, you're, or you live where polis, political and personal freedoms are, 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 are scarce or they're, they're nowhere to be found. If you're born here or born under an oppressive dictatorship in a communist country, real freedom is found in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the freedoms we have in this country, but I exalt the freedom I have in Christ above all freedoms. These four things at the end of this letter were not to bind up and burden the Gentile believers. No, they were things that would help them to walk in the freedom that Jesus had already purchased for them by his blood and brought them out into. These things would cause their fellowship and unity with others in the body of Christ and their fellowship and intimacy with their Lord to be unhindered. And with that, the letter concluded with a fond farewell. But in these next couple of verses, we're going to see now the delivery and reading of the letter. Let's continue on and read verses 30 and 31. It says, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they all said, Oh, man! No. What does it say? When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. The, the, the last group that arrived in Antioch from Jerusalem, a group that had gone out but not been sent out by the church in Jerusalem, had brought this teaching to the brethren in Antioch that had left them troubled and with their souls unsettled. But now we find this other group arriving in Antioch from Jerusalem, this group being sent out by the church in Jerusalem who gathered the multitude of believers together, Jews and Gentiles, to deliver this letter. And when they read it, the multitude rejoiced over its encouragement. The souls of the Gentiles were no longer troubled or unsettled because this matter had been handled and settled by the direction of the Holy Spirit as the church leaders came together to address this situation and they were obedient to the leading of the Spirit to conclude in unity that these Gentiles were not going to be justified by faith in Jesus plus something else, but that they would be saved or justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, just as the Jews. 
This letter didn't make them feel even more troubled, but instead it brought about great rejoicing. The decision of the church leaders and church in Jerusalem didn't cause their souls to feel even more unsettled, but instead it brought about great encouragement and comfort and joy. These four things in the letter that they were to abstain from clearly weren't viewed by the Gentile believers as a burden, but instead were viewed as a blessing because they were given instruction on how to preserve right fellowship, right unity between themselves and their Jewish brethren, and also instruction on how to preserve right fellowship, right intimacy with their Lord. Imagine how freeing this letter would have been to these Gentile believers. I I believe the rejoicing over this letter being an outward sign of an inward confidence they now had, confidence that they could rest in the freedom that Jesus had already provided for them through his salvation as they put their faith in him. And this is a confidence that Jesus is wanting us to have today. Confidence that what he did on the cross was enough. That we can't do anything to add to it. That his blood has brought about a new covenant of grace for you and me. Given real freedom that we can rest in, but also a freedom we need to stand firm in so that we don't become entangled with the yoke of bondage ever again, as Paul wrote to these Galatian believers in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Guys, I want us to understand this morning because you and I, there's always going to be some sort of struggle. As long as we're being sanctified on this side of heaven, there's always going to be a struggle because temptations abound. And even when the temptations aren't there, we've got our sin nature there. We've got our flesh that's always wanting to go against what the Spirit of God would desire for our lives. I want us to understand this morning that that Jesus doesn't hold freedom like a carrot in front of us. It's there. Just keep going. Just keep being a little bit better. Do a little bit more. Then you'll have it, but it's always just right out of reach. I think there are believers. I know that there are believers who are in that sort of place where freedom from sin is elusive to them. And because it's not their current reality, because they're still struggling, because there's still some things that they're not finding victory over, a couple different things happen. One of them being that you just kind of settle into a place of defeat. Well, I haven't found victory, so I'm never going to find it. God hasn't delivered me from this sort of thing, so I'm never going to be delivered. But that's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Another thing can happen. You're not experiencing victory, so you just stay in this place of, of condemnation. You're just constantly condemned because... You, you, you maybe struggle in that thing and you, you falter in it and you give yourself over to it. And so the enemy has you in this perfect place of just robbing you of the joy of the Lord because when you're 
struggling with sin and you're not finding victory and you're condemned in that place, there's no joy there to be found. You're not a joyful Christian. You're not at peace before the Lord. But guys, I want you to, to know, to be confident this morning that the freedom that Jesus has given each of us when we put our faith in him was not a partial freedom. It was real freedom. When he set you free, you were free indeed. You couldn't be more free than the moment when Jesus declared your freedom, when he paid for your sin, when he, when he removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, never to be re remembered by the Lord again. You could never be more free. But guys, there is victory to be found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. There is power in Jesus to over, overcome sin and temptation. Know that this morning. Be confident in that this morning. And those things that maybe you're still struggling in, those things that you're not seeing victory in your life, don't buy into the lie that you'll never find victory. Don't allow yourself to stay in that place where you're wallowing in condemnation, but keep clinging to Jesus. Keep pressing in. He will meet you where you're at. Jesus is able to break those chains. He's able to deliver because that's what he does. That's who he is. Amen. Let's read our last few verses here as we're going to see the ministry that followed the letter. Verses 32 through 35. It says in verse 32, Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. They read the letter to the church there, rejoicing and encouragement came about because of the letter. But now two other, the two other leading men from the church that they sent out, Judas and Silas, who also had been given a prophetic role in the early church, prophets being one of the leadership gifts given by Jesus to the early church, which we looked at in one of our studies when we were in the beginning of Acts chapter 13. But these two men used their leadership role, their leadership gifting to exhort and strengthen the brethren with many words. And after staying there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren in Antioch to the apostles in Jerusalem, no doubt sharing the joy and encouragement and excitement that came about because of the letter. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, their, their home church, where they had already been spending a lot of time loving and serving and teaching the people there before being sent out in Acts 13. And here we find again in verse 35 that after remaining there, they preached and taught the word of the Lord with many others also. Isn't it cool that what we're to, doing today is just the same thing that the early church did? Nothing fancy. 
over and over again, we see them teaching and preaching the word. Why? Why such an emphasis? Well, it's through the written word that we come face to face with the living word, Jesus. It's how we come to know the heart of God is through his word. Such a crucial aspect to what we do and who we are as a church. Instead of the church becoming divided, as we see these things kind of close up here, the results of the letter and all the situation, instead of the church becoming divided, it became even further united together, and the fellowship between Jews and Gentiles became even sweeter and more established through the decisions of the council here. Instead of false doctrine prevailing and the gospel being twisted and countless generations of people turned away from the Lord, the true gospel of grace prevailed and was solidified both then and forever. And great joy and peace and rest and confidence and encouragement was brought to those whose souls had been troubled and unsettled things the gospel still does today as people turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Guys, the the ripple effects of this letter are still extending out to us today. I'm so thankful for the example of Paul and Barnabas, of Peter, of James, of the way the council handled these things, their humility and submission to the Lord, their obedience to the voice of the Spirit, their love and care for the Gentile believers who had... Who, who Jesus had made them family with and how they taught and preached the word of the Lord, all things that we can and should learn from and that we're still benefiting from today. I'm gonna have Regina come back up. In closing this morning, I wanna ask us, how's the state of our soul, our mind today? You know, maybe for some, you're just needing to be ministered to, encouraged, strengthened in the Lord. And if that is you this morning, just encourage you. Be honest before the Lord. Bring those things to Him. We're told in 1 Peter to cast our cares upon Him, for He cares for us. Do you know the great care of the Lord this morning? Because when we know that he really does care, it helps us to not keep our own cares, to not let our own anxieties and fears and struggles stay as a weight on our shoulder, but to throw all of those things over to the Lord and to let him deal with them. You know, God wants to make our lives, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a living letter that we'd be living epistles read by all men. Living letters of the gospel that would bring encouragement, that would be read by others to bring life and hope to other people. God wants to use us in these days. There is no shortage of heavy hearts 
There's no shortage of hopelessness. There's no shortage of discouragement. You and I are to be hope heralders. Hope bearers. We have that hope. We're to bring it to other people. You know, maybe for some today, you're not walking in the freedom that Jesus has already provided for you. Maybe you've been entangled with a yoke of bondage. You know, maybe for some today, you know, the right response for you is confession and repentance. You know, confession means to speak the same thing about something as someone else does. So when we confess our sins, we're saying the same thing about our sins that God does. We don't make light of it. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't make excuses for it. We say, Lord, that is sin. And Lord, I confess that sin to you, Lord, and I I turn from it to you. I turn away from that sin, Lord. And would you give me the power to, to live in victory, to walk in that abundant life that you've already provided for me? If that's you today, I encourage you, don't stay in that place any longer. Jesus set you free so that you would be free. (laughs) But wherever we're at, I believe the Lord has something for us here in this passage of Scripture, something for us today to take home, to, to apply to our lives. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you that we've been saved by grace. Lord, that your grace is sufficient. Lord, that turning to you in faith, repenting from our sin and and turning to you, Lord, it was enough. It's always been enough, Lord. That, Lord, our faith is what pleases you. That, Lord, being justified in your sight is is not a partial thing. Lord, it's where your righteousness is placed into our account. Lord, your salvation has purchased our freedom. Lord, thank you that when you set us free, we became free indeed. Lord, thank you that you care about the state of our souls, Lord, that for some of us who may be troubled and unsettled today, maybe some are struggling with doubt or discouragement, depression, hopelessness, fear, anxiety. There's a relationship that's strained. There's finances that are strained. There's just stuff going on. There's struggles with temptation and sin. Lord, God, would you meet your people where they're at today? Lord, would you bring peace? Would you bring rest? Would you bring victory? Would you bring joy? Would you bring hope? Lord, would you bring healing? Would you bring restoration? Lord, would you bring unity? Would you bring greater love and Charity within people and relationships, God. Lord, we need you. 
God, we don't want to stay in that place of verse 7 where there's just much dispute. People aren't seeing eye to eye. There's division and strife and angst. Lord, we want to be in verse 22, Lord. We want to experience your peace, Lord, your unity. Lord, the unity that you give through your spirit. Lord, that we would embrace one another as family. That we would have grace in one another's failures and weaknesses. Lord, that in love, there would be a covering of a multitude of sin even. God, knit us together closer to you and closer to each other as a body. And God, for those that are struggling in sin today, God, I pray that you would give victory. Lord, you'd give strength, you'd give courage, you'd give hope, Lord, that, that you would, God, bind and drive away the, the, the efforts of our, our spiritual enemy who, Lord, only wants to steal and kill and destroy. Lord, would you cause us to stand against the wiles, the tactics of the devil, that we'd be able to resist the devil and have him flee from us. Lord God, give us power in our place of weakness. God, that we would stand in your freedom. God, meet your people today. And if there's anybody here, you don't just first have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to save you. He wants to do a work in your life. If that's you would you stand where you're at so I can pray for you this morning? If that's anybody at all here, you're going, look, I, I want that freedom. I want that salvation. I want my sins forgiven. I want real hope. You know, maybe you're, you're in that place of, of just being unsettled, your soul being troubled, Maybe you're carrying around hurts this morning. I'd love to pray for you if that's you. Would you stand where you're at if that's anybody? You've got some trouble, some unsettling, some discouragement, some fear. Anybody else? I believe the Lord wants to meet people this morning, wants to bring a lightning of burdens bringing hope this morning, bringing a touch. Anybody else? Lord, I pray for these that have stood. Lord God, would you minister to them? Lord, you know what's going on in their lives. God, you know the ways, Lord, that they need a touch from you, God. They need a word from you. Lord, where they need help and hope. God, where there's healing needed. God, I pray that you would minister. You would meet them. God, you would uphold them. Lord, that you would see them through any trial. Lord, that God, you would be their strength and their joy and their peace. God, that you would touch those areas of brokenness, Lord, that it even those things that, that seem beyond hope and help, Lord, that you would, you would intervene. Lord, that it, even in those things that the enemy would mean for evil, that God, you would bring about good, you would glorify yourself.
God, pour out your spirit upon them this morning. Lord, would they cast all their cares upon you and find, Lord, your great care for them as they do that. And God, as we respond to your word and praise this morning, Lord, just continue, God, to to stir our hearts, Lord. God, stirring in us an even greater love for you, God, that we would really love you and love others. Lord, we want to be about the Father's business in these days. Lord, would you lead us? Would you go before us? God, would you send us out as missionaries, Lord, into our homes and into our friend circles, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods and the marketplace? God, send us, send us, God, and give us a boldness in these days, Lord, to declare your truth, your gospel, that others, Lord, who are in bondage to sin would find life and freedom and hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, use us in these days. Be glorified, Lord. We thank you. We love you. We want to sing your praise now and take these communion elements in remembrance of you, Jesus. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.